welcome back to Equity Matters, a free podcast that uses personal storytelling to talk all things equity. I am your host, Dr. Miranda Ward, and I come to describe myself, as you know, as a community educator, a curriculum developer, and a youth builder. Yes, I teach at the George Washington University. Yes, I run Promising Futures, a youth nonprofit, and yes, All of the ideas expressed here are mine. That said, let's go ahead and get started. So a lot has gone down since the last episode, y'all. For instance, I actually designed and led a five-part health equity professional development learning series at GW. And I must admit that it was originally designed with faculty in mind, but since opened up to everybody, basically, students, practitioners, community members, and researchers who have an interest in gaining a shared understanding of health equity. So uh, first things first, I convened an external panel of public health professionals to really kind of help me come up with topics and speakers. So let me just take a moment and thank my Black Ladies in Public Health, B-L-I-P-H, sisters, for joining me in that endeavor. And I believe it made sense to kick off that five-month series that started back in September of 2019 with my very own one-hour lecture entitled Framing Health Equity because it was important to really just kind of debut with some foundational concepts to help frame health equity while distinguishing it from the related concept of health disparity so that you know what that meant, right? We had to talk about social justice. We had to talk about human rights principles. And that session, like all the other three lectures that followed it, were live streamed and recorded because I'm all about accessibility, okay? So you can actually find that archive online at SMHS, which is School of Medicine Health Sciences dot GWU, which is um, George Washington University, so GWU, and then forward slash health equity series. So let me do that again. That's SMHS dot GWU forward slash health equity series. So if you go to that link, that website, you're actually going to um, see the list of all of the speakers, all of the topics from how to talk about race, power, and privilege in the classroom to, you know, important U.S. populations that are impacted by health disparities. And like I said, the the actual Framing Health Equity, um, you know, kind of debut session. And just you'll be able to see all of the speakers that were invited as well as the ones who actually were invited for the panel discussion and to lead the roundtable discussions at the culminating event this past January, um, which was the Translating Health Equity into Action Symposium. Um, So you definitely don't want to miss that. On this episode, we are joined by Dr. Carrie Sutton, the Director of Health Equity Research Workforce and Scientific Affairs at the Association of American Medical Colleges, also known as the AAMC. So you may not know that she actually led the third lecture in the GW Health Sciences five-part health equity professional development learning series with a talk on the root causes of health disparities. And she's here today to talk more about her own personal values, interest, and engagement with the aim for health equity. So as you know, Dr. Sutton, 
If you were to ask five people what health equity is, you're bound to get six different responses, right? That's true. That's very true. (laughs) So that's why I wanted to kick off this series with a framing discussion with some key terminology and definitions on what exactly health equity is and how it's distinguishable but related to health disparities. And so, you know, people walked away with, you know, some key understanding and shared language from that particular lecture, but not everyone kind of tuned in. So why not start off for our listeners with how you have come to explain and understand health equity? Um, So the definition that I use for health equity and one of the definitions that we use at AAMC is basically um, individuals achieving their fullest health potential regardless of social advantage or disadvantage. So you have the opportunity to achieve your best health for your particular situation. It's not a one-size-fit-all kind of thing for health equity. And then those health disparities are differences in health that are due to differences of power, also your uh, social status within um, in, in society, and also those health disparities are the differences of health just rooted in race and ethnicity and gender. Um, so you're also you're comparing health disparities. So so usually you have the comparative group for health disparities. Um, um, they're usually not within group. Um, so sometimes we usually think about. Um, we think about rural populations, and so that is a underserved population. So there are health disparities, but there are health disparities within rural populations in those subgroups. So, so once again, just restating, health disparities are just the differences or inequities in health that are rooted in differences of power in, in underserved groups. Absolutely. I really appreciate you differentiating the within and across group um, differences, especially when we think about, you know, the role that power and and the, I guess, maldistribution yes. of, of wealth and resources really have historically and systemically. So speaking of systemically, we're actually going to get back to that point in a minute. <laughs> but first, <laughs> um, you know, when I meet with the youth in my nonprofit, when I meet with students here on campus, one of the things I like to do is I like to ask them to introduce introduce themselves and their people, right? So for example, my people are black, are feminist, um, they are community engaged, they are lifelong learners, they are committed to equity and youth development. They're also team Android, right? (laughs) They're also, you know, put the toilet paper on so it rolls over instead of under, right? So I can go on and on I think I might be one of your people. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I I think we had like a kindred spirit, right? (laughs) I love it. So um, why don't you share with us some of the identities and communities that are important to you and why that matters for health equity? Um, So I identify so Basically, who I am, uh, it goes back to where I'm from. So I'm originally from Greensboro, North Carolina, born and raised um, with uh, my parents are originally from the South as well, um, but very much family oriented and family rooted. Um, And so my kind of 
people, I would say, would be your health equity scientists. Um, a lot of my training was in the ethical, legal, and social implications of genomic technologies among underrepresented groups. So the genome world is my, those identify well with that. Um, I'm a researcher, community-engaged person. And then most importantly, I am a Black woman that um, is very much passionate about making sure that people have the opportunities to have their fullest potential for health, but also the best opportunities for life and whatever that means for that individual person. So crafting those experiences and making sure those opportunities are available um, is is where I stand. Um, and then I'm just, I'm, I'm a mother. I'm a mother of an amazing little boy who turns two in April. And um, and so th that's a new identity that I have just coming into. And so seeing the world through his eyes, but also making sure um, that I am... I'm fighting for those opportunities for a young black male that is coming up in this world where it's difficult for brown and black boys to be present and be um, just be alive. So, so um, I really kind of really connected to your um, discussion of genomics in particular and then also of you being a mom. So I will, let me start with the latter point. I'm not a mom, but I will say I just got a new puppy, so I feel like a mom <laughs> to my phone yeah, that's... <laughs> with all the training yeah. and the right. So I'm like, ooh, oh my God, what did I bite off? Okay, but back to genomics though. So I was, I'm so excited that the Human Genome Project was complete because that is the the credibility that I often rely on when I'm talking about how race is made up and how you can't even trace it, you know, genetically. And so why don't you share with us a little bit more about your entree into genomics? Um, so I'll share a story. Um, so my dissertation work was looking at genetic testing and why um, racial and ethnic minorities are underrepresented in genetic testing and genomic research period. Um, the reason being for that, it was um, my mother um, and her side of the family um, 13 women have all had breast cancer. So there was a genetic component to it. It's definitely running in the family. Um, however, uh, when faced with the, the opportunity to be part of genetic testing or participate or actually do a genetic test for BRCA1 or 2, she refused. And she refused based off a whole host of reasons and I couldn't understand. And her story was not unique. Um, so that's how I got into the work of looking at the decisions about genetic testing among African-Americans in particular. Um, and so when you think about genomics, um, it, it, there's an opportunity for us to learn so much, but there's also an opportunity for us to exacerbate health disparities because of the, the, um, the inequities and also looking at the differential uptake of those particular technologies. We still have a lot of work to do when we're talking about technology and interactions among patients and communities because we're still battling with this legacy of mistrust that has yet to go away. Um, and reasons why it's yet to go away is because we 
haven't really confronted the truth and haven't really talked authentically about the history of why we are where we are now. Um, so we can't just sweep it under the rug or have a movie for Tuskegee or Henrietta Lacks and think that things are going to be fine. Um, but we have to really confront and have authentic conversations with communities, not only black people, but we're talking about American Indians, Alaskan Natives, Guatemalan. So all of these individuals that have been affected by these particular researchers and research atrocities are affecting our decisions about interacting with like genomic and genomic technologies. Yeah, and then that actually ties well with the um, the concept of research abuse that you actually addressed in your talk on some of those root causes. So what are your thoughts on the, the NIH effort to include more um, people of color, even though we know, like you said, there's like this historical, you know, mistrust and distrust um, with the whole All of Us study. Yeah, so All of Us is definitely a great push to have the one million samples across communities. Um, and so I would say I appreciate the efforts in them um, looking at having community-engaged centers, having community-engaged researchers, but yet, the actual conceptualization of the program was some it was done in absence of community input agreed and yes, so yes. Um, therefore um, when it was time for community input or when community input was incorporated it was it was far along into the process um, a little bit too late um, and so as we both know as community engaged researchers um, you engage the community in the output in the design mm -hmm. of your of whatever whatever you're gonna do in the messaging in in the products, anything that you're doing where you, it's not just you, you're working with community and collaborating and partnering with the community. Um, and so that was not done. Um, so um, there's a lot of work to be done, um, but yet, um, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done with this particular a piece of research of all of us campaign. So agreed, they're yeah. backpedaling right now because of that. You know, misstep. Yes, um, yeah. So in the outset, not necessarily having engagement with the uh, the tribal communities, uh, but yet seeing those missteps and being able to correct those and now having like task force for tribal communities, engaging um, leaders in the field for community engagement. I feel that's a good step that they've taken. So um, it is promising, but I do not feel like, um, I feel like there's still so much work to be done when we're talking about engaging underrepresented groups in research period. And then with, with societal issues, and we're talking about your genetics, you're talking about your samples. Um, there's so much mistrust about immigration and fear of uh, stigma and things of that sort. So there's much work to be done um, before we keep pushing forward new technology. Absolutely. And so I appreciate you being, um, you know, incredibly candid about where we are with that particular initiative. Um, does the AAMC uh, officially endorse that effort? Um, we not we don't really officially endorse in efforts, but we have been involved in um, a lot of the work. And also Philip Alberti, who's the senior director for health equity research and policy, uh, serves on a task force for the precision medicine for 
for um, the Vanderbilt um, Community Engagement Center. So they're one that have a grant that they're doing a lot of the work in the community for that particular area. So um, we've made sure that our input and our comments have been heard at the NIH. And I feel like they've been hearing it. Um, it's just an opportunity. Um, I'm glad that they figured it out in the beginning and have been able to kind of reshift some of those conversations and been engaging with some of the more of the experts and the people on the ground um, in that particular area. Is the charge group, and I'll, you can remind me what that stands for in a moment, but is that a, like a medium for people to actually weigh in and provide some comments and some insights on, you know, yeah, that process? So, so AAMC CHARGE, um, CHARGE stands for the Collaborative for Health Equity Act Research Generate Evidence. Um, so AAMC CHARGE is a opportunity and it's a collaborative for anyone interested in health equity research and scholarship to um, collaborate, network, be part of the policy process, whether it's our comment letters that we're giving to federal agencies or Congress or um, really network. Um, we call it, it is not necessarily a mentoring group, right? Um, there are a lot of mentoring groups out there that do great things. We are really uh, focusing on providing professional achievement opportunities for health equity scientists, community members to really push forward their health equity research and scholarship and also to mobilize our efforts for achieving health equity and minimizing health disparities. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure you're probably familiar with the saying, to uh, think global but act local. So what would you say um, is the call for health equity showing up globally, nationally, and locally? Oh, wow. That's a good question. <laughs> um, so what is the could – you could you reset that again? Yeah. I mean, how do you believe the call for health equity shows up globally, nationally, and locally? I mean, I feel like the call for health equity shows up in many different forms. Mm -hmm. um, right now, health equity is, um, it's more of a, a term that is being used more freely. Um, social terms of health is like, was the buzzword for 2019. It, right. It actually was. I, they got an award for that. Um, so Wait, who's they? The, it was an organization, a public health organization said the buzzword for 2019 is social terms of health. And it was like, no one officially accepted, but it was right. interesting. Um, and so the call for health equity right now is showing up um, in different forms. So I'm just going to use one example. Um, right now, you're hearing more on a local level and a national level and on a global level, unfortunately, about maternal mortality disparities and morbidity uh, disparities among black women in particular and other women of color. Um, and that is definitely been a call for health equity more so now. There's, we're in the awareness raising session where that black women are two to three times more likely to die during childbirth than any other race or ethnicity. And American, Indian, and Alaskan Native women are up there with black women as well. Um, and it doesn't get talked about that much. It does not. It, it, it not. And right. and so, the 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 sad part about this is that even when um, you control, so in, if everyone still had the same education level, high education level, and high income level, those disparities still persist. So it's 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 
um, is actually having people at this point where you think about, okay, well, it's not an access issue at this point, and it's not an education issue, and it's not an income issue. It's actually making people stop and pause that there might be some other things that go on within the healthcare setting and outside of the healthcare setting that actually affect women's life. And so now this is a call for health equity because we're now looking at some of these root causes for um, disparities and inequities that may exist in structural nature and policy and bias and discrimination. And one thing, we're talking about racism more in the healthcare setting. And naming it as such. Exactly. And in in some ways we do. I mean, I do sometimes feel like we cover it up and say it's implicit bias, but let's just call it out for what it is, is overt racism. And so um, being comfortable enough to use those words um, is how we are kind of pushing this health equity, that making sure that women, regardless of your social status, that you're still able to achieve your best and full potential for health. Right. Um, So then speaking of those, like that structural nature of how pervasive these health disparities are, again, across time, across, you know, space, um, that really becomes one of those critiques that I have of the public health field. You know, I'm a public health practitioner. I love public health. But again, like I said, I say critique in public health. And I know even in my graduate training, there was a tendency um, to kind of focus on individual health decisions, right, and attitudes, and almost at the expense of, you know, what was kind of going on at the structural level. And I like, I'm glad to see that now when I look at graduate training programs, there's definitely more of a paradigm shift and, you know, like the unit of analysis is more at that population health level. And that's one of the things that I really appreciate from your talk and, and really identifying how when we're having this discussion about health disparities, we're not talking about individual people, right? right. We're, <laughs> we're having conversations about populations. Yes. yes. So this is a population health discussion. Yes. <laughs> so when, when and I guess, what, at what point in your life or in your work did it really become apparent that, it, you know, these are systems and structures that we really have to address? And we know that that's, you know, complicated, messy. But at what point did you really identify that, given, you know, where the public health field has traditionally been kind of focused on you potentially just eat better, move more. You know, this is like a lot of, you should see a lot of messaging and, you know, like theories around personal health decisions. Um, so I guess in my career or along my life trajectory of when I figured out that, you know, there things are in structural um, nature is, I think, as growing up, really. Um, um, as I said, both of my parents are from the South. My mom um, was uh, one of the first to integrate her schools um, from where she lived. She lived in the rural North Carolina. Um, much of her schooling from first to eighth grade was in um, like a one-room schoolhouse where the grades were divided by rows on benches. And there was one teacher for the entire schoolhouse. They went to school to church um, because they, at that point they weren't able to um, go to a regular school. And it wasn't until she entered high school school that she actually went to school with other races or Caucasians. Um, And so, and then my father was a, um, the son of a sharecropper in Eastern North Carolina. Um, So when you look at communities and looking at the distribution of wealth and the inequities of wealth um, among these communities, you actually see how it does affect health and also affects how the community thrives within itself. And so because of the policies, uh, going back to my mother, 
uh, because of those particular pro policies within her area that she lived, um, you know, many people did not thrive and they did the best that they could. But it was basically there were structural inequities that made the, made it difficult for people to push forward. Um, the opportunities weren't there. I, I think a lot about education. I'm sorry, but. No, 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 no. I so I, <laughs> I I do think about a lot about yeah. ed education and the unequal distribution of resources mm -hmm. in the education system. I actually do SAT prep, ACT prep, oh. and all times a test prep in the district and with uh, public charter schools. And looking at um, the differences of the schools that I've gone to, um, you wonder how you're expecting kids to thrive in this type of environment and then move ahead and try to go to college. And then also thinking about the other pieces of not necessarily having the working computers and having adequate teachers and education, like you said, is a key determinant. And so thinking about that, but sometimes I'm like, is it the way it is for this particular school because of the population that we're dealing with in this school? So having um, low SES and usually having one parent that has a college degree or no college degree at all. Are this, is this distribution like this because of just because they want individuals not to be able to move ahead? And so I think about that a lot. And I think a lot of those kids that I do teach, they feel that way because if you go – maybe five miles down the road across the, the bridge mm -hmm. there's differences so sorry to go to you know move that way but that's where i've been noticing more um on the ground within these past few years and providing this these volunteer opportunities for the kids it's just it's yeah Right. No, I mean, we know. I mean, even with the the new health equity report that, you know, um the 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 Commission on Health Equity and the, the new Office on Health Equity outside of D.C. Health, um, the top of this year released the Health Equity Report that really used um, census track data to really kind of map out how where you live literally determines how long you live, yeah. right? And so all of those factors from, you know, the quality of education to housing to the built environment to road to everything all of those things literally are are weighing in on your uh, your health outcomes so it made sense for you to you know kind of pinpoint the, the, the role that the, that the school plays. Yeah, I mean. Right? And the property value around that. And we already know people getting pushed out and priced out. And, you know, so like all of these all of these factors are weighing in right now. So, like I said, it's very complicated, which is why, you know, the call for health equity sometimes feels massive. It feels overwhelming because it's like, again, there's all of these compounding variables. And it's kind of like, well, where do we begin yeah, and so the one of the things about health equity is that when we talk about it, it's something that any individual, regardless if you're the basic scientist looking at your lab rats or frogs, that you could still do your work through a health equity lens. Absolutely. And so if I think um, a lot of times we operate in silos, that the health equity scientist is here, the diversity is over there, and then we have research over here. And when there's an opportunity for us to systematize this work and have health equity and diversity and equity and inclusion and all of these principles um, thread throughout all of mm -hmm. the work that we do at an institution or if you anywhere that you work or any part of your daily life, um, that's where I feel like we could 
be more intentional and, and focus on systematizing that work. Absolutely. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But um, now that we got some key terminology oh. and understanding <laughs> underway, um, exactly how did you even get into this work? Oh. Um, so let's see. How did I? Okay. So I'm a graduate of Howard University. Um, and love, yes. Yes, yes. I love it. Um, and so my background and training is in chemistry. So I have a degree in chemistry and classical civilization. Ooh. Very much interested in Latin and Roman civ and Greek civ. Um, and then I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, initially it was like oh I want to go to medical school I want to help people um but then I was very much interested in research and it was about that time where my mom was kind of asking or teetering tottering on her genetic testing kind of question and I was just like wait I was reading more stories and she just wasn't the only one so I was like this is a cool research topic and so I pursued graduate school, um, ended up going to Virginia Tech um, and getting a PhD in science and technology policy, uh, focusing on this genome issue. Um, much of my work was funded, or actually all of it was funded by the National Human Genome Research Institute. So, um, and they have like a ethical, legal, social implication portfolio. So, um a fellowship through that and so really looking at health disparities and also looking at the differential uptake of genomic technologies among African Americans and uh, Latinx communities. Um, and then like, then I was like, wow, this is really interesting. But at the point that I was in this work, um, the, the technology was evolving. So at the point I was writing my dissertation, like pharmacogenomics and personalized medicine was like the new thing. Mm -hmm. And so everybody was like, oh, I can have like designer babies and I could do, I could do whatever I want with my genome. And so, um, Ended up doing more work in um, looking at health disparities, but more focused on population-based biobanking and um, working at UNC Chapel Hill School of Medicine um, in their Department of so uh, Genomics and Society. Um, and it was at that point that I was like, this is really great. A lot of the community-engaged research, a lot of interaction with uh, community members and patients, um, but really was really interested about the national level and the policy um, and also trying to not be on the ground, but also have that like, you know, 10,000 foot view of everything that's going on. So that's kind of how I transitioned to this health equity research and policy space. Um, but very much still very much passionate and committed uh, to working with community members and engaging about a variety of topics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so as you were speaking, that reminded me of one of the some of the work of one of our tenured faculty, Shaniqua Callier. Familiar oh, yeah. with her? Yes. yes. She does that work on precision medicine, epigenetics, and designer babies, all that. So Yeah, so we were trainees <laughs> together in oh. the LC uh, trainee program. It's a small so, world. Yes. Of course. <laughs> of course you know yes. each other. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So what would you say is most perplexing or and let me not even say or, and most fulfilling about your work? Um, so we kind of touched on this. Um, at some point, the, the work can be over, uh, overwhelming. Um, as you know, that health equity and health disparities, the needle moves very, very slow. Um, and, and with the needle moving so slow, um, you can sometimes feel, um, I don't want to say depressed, but you can, you can feel kind of down. Um, and then, 
the other piece of the work that can be a little bit challenging is that with this work, a lot of it is a uh, stemming or the reason why I'm so passionate is because it is part of my lived experience. Mm -hmm. And so with it being so close to home and you know people that have experienced this or have tr trouble with this, and especially with the work that I'm doing in maternal mortality, being a black woman and having a kid and hopefully having another, that's a reality for me. And so you kind of, you know the data, you know the work, and then sometimes you try to not let it affect you so personally. And like yeah. you just, you know, self-care is important. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> right? um, and so, but the, the, the thing about it that is so invigorating and it keeps me going is that there are opportunities for change. And as I said before, we're talking about social determinants of health on the Congress floor. We're talking about racism and discrimination and bias, like things that weren't necessarily talked about before are now being talked about openly. And so I feel like that's been an opportunity for change. And then on it for our work at AAMC, we've seen institutions move the needle and do some great things and have exemplary programs that are changing health so yeah. you know um as I was posing that question to you I almost kind of want to turn the question on myself and I think that when I was starting this work with kind of teaching health equity designing the health equity curriculum here um in the department of clinical research and leadership I will say that in the very beginning, I did get a lot of pushback from students, you know? Why has everything gotta be about race, right? And so, you know, I, and then especially me being, you know, black faculty, and then, it, you know, it's already, they already see everything that I'm saying through a, a different lens because I'm a black woman. Yeah. So, um, so also, since I am a pedagogue, I knew that as, I saw it as an opportunity to kind of think about how am I going to de design the learning experience so that, you know, these conversations are ones where students are primed for these discussions. Um, and, you know, and granted, there's going to be some times where you're just going to have to be uncomfortable, right? It's just real, right? I'm not going to sugarcoat it. This is what it is. But at the same time, I think there are also ways to have these conversations in meaningful ways, in ways that are reflective, that are introspective, and, and, and the like. And I didn't know if you've ever had any, I mean, I know that you're not, you know, in a, you know, faculty uh, kind of teaching capacity, but, you know, you have these conversations with a range of stakeholders and everyone's not open to having these conversations, like you said, around talking about structural racism or white supremacy, like literally, you know, terms that really allow for some people to um, kind of just put a wall up. Mm -hmm and become defensive or feel guilty. And these are kind of some, some of the discussions that we even had at our, our last lecture series on how to talk about race and power and privilege. So I didn't know if, you know, if that had been your experience at all in having these discussions so openly and widely. Um, yeah, I definitely have been having these discussions um, more. Um, one of the things that I've noticed is that there has been looking um, and working with some younger scholars who are in the space, um, those are in undergrad that are interested in health equity, um, and that they are very hesitant and also apprehensive in using the terms racism or discrimination or uh, 
uh, uh, privilege and power using those terms in their in their uh, presentations, mm-hmm. um, and and I've asked them, and it's because they don't want to feel like they are being placed in the box of like you said, being black uh, scholars. It's always about race, and it's always about you know unfair and unfairness and unjustness. Um, one of the things that the conversations that I've had with them over time is that um, you cannot be afraid to call it out for what it is, because if you don't call it out, then no one else is going to feel like it is a problem. Um, so what I've used is my platform to make them feel more comfortable in speaking about these things in ways in which, like you said, don't make people feel defensive, but also you need to be true and authentic and genuine in what you're saying. Um, and then for the different conversations and stakeholders that we have, um, we are we're intentional in the language, but also different things matter to different people. So when you talk about racism and structural inequities and and talk about health disparities and you're talking to C-suite leadership, they might not really understand the community impact, but they understand money and they understand return on investment and they understand, you know, (laughs) utilization and understand how you could save dollars. So talk to people in terms and use metrics that matter to those particular uh, stakeholders. Yeah, and that. So. Yeah, that makes sense, absolutely. So then what everyday steps do you take in your personal life that could get us that much closer to health equity? Oh, I, what do I do in my personal life? <laughs> so I guess in my personal life or health equity, like I said, I'm very family oriented and I love my hometown and I love my home church. So I do go back and give a lot of talks about uh, research participation, um, talk about clinical trials, uh, talk about really giving people information and information in ways in which they can digest it. Um, and, and having, open conversations and dialogues about apprehensions and obstacles and barriers to healthcare and things of that sort. And also provide them information about some of the disparities that are occurring because people really don't know. You asked the question about NIH and like, you know, clinical trial participation and all of us participation. There's quite a few studies that say, you know, Though the participation rates among African-Americans and other communities are low, um, it's not because they don't want to do it. It's because no one's ever asked. Mm. And so making people under aware that being like um, research literate and also being health literate right. to, so that they understand and feel like they can make these decisions, um, that's what I do. I, I give a lot of talks to basically to my home community, um, a way of giving back because they gave me a lot of talks talks about stuff, not about research, but just stuff that has helped me along the way. Right, I'd love to hear that. So then I remember earlier you were talking about, I mean, you made it very clear, and I already know, we definitely work in silos, right? And so you talked about... it's health equity literally is the work of everyone, right? From the city planner to the teacher to, you know, the researcher. So how would you suggest that... Um, a student, you know, or a youth, a D.C. resident can actually get involved and really uh, address health equity, either in their families, like in their neighborhoods, in their communities, at their workplace. 
I mean, there are many opportunities. Um, it just depends on what they're interested in. So there are opportunities to work with local government um, and also work within their city on like the health coalitions. Each city is doing a community health improvement plan or county. Um, and then there are also many other organizations. But as far as like low hanging fruit, social media is powerful. Mm -hmm. And so using technological platforms such as podcasts, like we're doing now, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook for advocacy for health equity issues that are occurring in your community and mobilizing and galvanizing other people that are interested in that are ways in which you can affect change and you could do it instantly um twitter is probably one of the most powerful tools um when something is trending i mean everyone's gonna see it so um instagram is another way so i have um another th conversation that i've been talking with students about is that looking at ways in which you can use these other technological platforms your phone to be a advocate and also advocate for policy changes or just local level changes even if you want to impact just the in your school um your local school so having those yeah and so would you be open to sharing any of your handles <laughs> <laughs> do you have a do you have any handles that are connected with the AMC that people can follow or so i'm in the process of rechanging a lot of oh, stuff okay. so in i transition. can stay yeah, tuned. I, I am in transition <laughs> and stay tuned okay yes, um yes. because with double amc charge we are in the process of crafting and we're piloting now a virtual community and so within that virtual community is the opportunity for people to connect um we have many webinars um and so after the webinar people want to talk more about the topic um, or also have a way to share information and resources. So right now, kind of making sure that the virtual community and then our personal Twitter handles or slash professional Twitter handles and LinkedIn profiles are looped into those virtual community networks. So that's why I'm in transition, but not for long. <laughs> okay, yeah. And so uh, are there any other resources? I know you mentioned podcasts. Are there any podcasts that you feel like, oh, you know what? You definitely have to tune into this. Or are there any, you know, books or any other, uh, like maybe webinars or, you know, conferences that people should be feel tuned into? So uh, lots of resources. Um, I really suggest everyone, um, if you have the opportunity, go to aamc.org backslash health equity. Um, that is our health equity research and policy uh, webpage. On that webpage, you'll see uh, resources um, and also there's an opportunity. There's a link there for where you can sign up for our health equity research update. That update comes out once a month and it provides you with a listing of all health equity related conferences, um, funding opportunities, resources. And um, if you're a person that has a conference coming up, you can also send the email to the, uh, that health equity address and we'll post it so it gets disseminated. Um, and so that's a great resource. Um, and then also gives you information on how to join Charge. Um, and with Charge, we do Charge Alerts. We love giving out information um, because one of the thing is um, health equity opportunities, um, you can find them, but sometimes they're harder to find. Um, and so we want to make sure that the people in our networks are knowing about 
jobs or fellowships or grant funding, which is key uh, to keep our money. yes, <laughs> keep our program sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like as far as books, I mean, I will always tell people to read "Medical Apartheid" by yes. Harriet Washington. I have it sitting on my desk yes. right now. Yes. Um, it gives you a true understanding of about the legacy of mistrust that I was speaking mm-hmm. about. It gives some uh, some key examples of what has happened in history and makes you you know really realize why people are so hesitant with participating in research in general um and then I listen to the podcast 1619 um and so there's just so much there's so much that happens in this world right now so I'm just like it's so much stuff that you can read. Like, so, oh, no. yes, yes. But it's a good place. It's a good starting place. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so thank you so much, Dr. Thank Sutton, for you. your time and like great. giving us a window into your world. And that's today's episode. But don't think that the conversation has to end here. You heard Dr. Sutton talk about the everyday steps that she takes to get us that much closer as a nation to health equity, as well as what she does even locally and personally in her family. So now it's time for some introspection. Have you considered what you can do to move the needle towards health equity? It's not just the work of the federal government, the local health department, hospitals, policymakers, you too can join in by talking about equity at the dinner table and at community meetings, especially the meetings that are including decisions that are going to affect where you and your neighbors live and park and bike and skate and eat and engage in recreation. So don't forget to use the hashtag Equity Matters to post your comments and your questions and your insights on Twitter. Speaking of which, you can find us on Twitter at underscore Equity Matters. Well, because equity matters.